It's a little different today. We have spotlights on that we don't normally have, which makes it a little harder for me to see. So we have, haven't been able to figure out what to do with them. But bear with me, please. We are in Matthew chapter 28 today. And we should be at the end of Matthew 6, but uh, being the guy who gets to pick what gets preached on, we jumped ahead to Matthew 28 because it's Easter. And this is about Easter. And we'll go back to Matthew 6 next week and pick up where we left off. But Matthew 28 is one of the great resurrection accounts in the Gospels, uh, which we appreciate so much. So if you would turn there with me, in Matthew 28, I'll read the first 10 verses. As you please give it your full attention as this is the Word of God. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning to open our eyes and help us see Jesus. Speak to our hearts of this great truth of the resurrection of the Lord. Change our lives this morning. And as always, for this, we need your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. As many of you may know, Christmas and Easter are not the highlights on the calendar for most preachers because we're trying to figure out how do we say the same thing in a new way. It's got to be different from last year. But it is the same old story. And, you know, you can read a story that you think you already know, and then you read it again, and all of a sudden you see something that you haven't seen before. You can read about the same event a hundred times, and then on the hundred and first time, you hear something so striking and so new, it makes you wonder if you were asleep the first hundred times. Maybe it's because you started in the middle of the story instead of at the beginning. Or perhaps someone else was reading it aloud and paused at a place that you normally wouldn't, and pow, it hits you. You grab the book and look at it just knowing that they read something wrong. But then you read it, and well, how do you do? Look at that. Well, that happened to me again. Only God knows how many times I've read the resurrection story, because I have no idea. 
at least a couple of dozen Easter's and a couple hundred times in between. I've taught it, I've preached this passage at least four times. So what did I see? Well, before I tell you, let me recount the story. It's early dawn on Sunday morning and the sky is dark. Those, in fact, are the words of the Apostle John in John chapter 20. He says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. It's a dark Sunday morning, and it's been dark since Friday. It was dark with Peter's denial, dark with the disciples' betrayal, dark with uh, Pontius Pilate's cowardice, dark with the anguish of Christ, and dark with Satan's glee. And the only ember of a flame is found in this small band of women who are standing at a distance from the cross watching. And the end of Matthew 27 tells us there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So among them are two Marys, one the mother of James and Joseph, and the others, Mary Magdalene. And why are they here? They are there at the crucifixion to call his name. And they're coming here the next morning to help prepare his body for burial. On Friday, they wanted to be the final voice, voices that he heard before he died. And on Sunday morning, they have come Essentially to clean him up, to clean the body, the blood from his beard, to clean his body, to wipe the crimson from his legs, to close his eyes, to touch his face. We just know that they are there, the last to leave Calvary and the first to arrive at the grave. And now we pick up with the first verse of our text this morning, and it says, Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So early on that Sunday morning, they leave their beds and walk out onto the tree-sheltered path, and they have a somber task. This morning promises only one encounter, and it's an encounter with a corpse. Remember, Mary and Mary don't know that this is the first Easter. They aren't hoping that the grave will be vacant. They aren't discussing what their response will be when they see Jesus. They have absolutely no idea that the tomb is empty. Now, there was a time when they dared to believe, but not now. It's too late for the incredible. The feet that walked on water have been pierced. The hands that healed lepers have been stilled. Noble aspirations were spiked into Friday's cross. Mary and Mary have come to a place where they're going to place warm oils on a cold body and bid farewell to the one man who gave them reason to hope. But it's not hope that leads them up that hill to the tomb. It's duty. It's naked devotion. They expect nothing in return. What could Jesus give? What could a dead man offer? These two women are not climbing the mountain to receive. They're going to the tomb to give, period. And there is no motivation more noble. There are times when we too are called to love, expecting nothing in return. Times when we're called to give money to people who will never say thanks. 
to forgive those who won't forgive us back, to come early and stay late when nobody notices. Service prompted by duty. It's the call of Christian discipleship. And Mary and Mary knew a task had to be done. Jesus' body had not been completely prepared for burial. Peter didn't offer to do it. Andrew didn't volunteer. The forgiven adulteress or the healed lepers are nowhere to be seen. And so the two Marys decide to do it. And I wonder if halfway to the tomb they sat down and reconsidered. You know, what if they just looked at each other and shrugged? What's the use? What if they'd given up? What if one of them had thrown up her arms in frustration and said, you know, I'm tired of being the only one who cares. Let Andrew do something for a change. Let Nathaniel show some leadership. Whether or not they were tempted, I'm glad they didn't quit. Would have been tragic because, you see, we know something that they didn't. We know the Father was watching. Mary and Mary thought they were alone, but they weren't. They thought their journey was unnoticed, but they're wrong. God knew. God's watching them walk to the mountain, to the tomb. He's measuring their steps. He's smiling at their hearts, and he's thrilled at their devotion, and he has a surprise waiting for them. And surprisingly enough, they have faith in return. See, in this passage in Matthew 28, as with all the resurrection accounts in all the other Gospels, Jesus recognizes their faith, he rewards their faith, and he requires faith. In fact, every time Jesus shows up, every time he shows up after he's risen from the dead, he's dealing with faith. All of these incidents... In all of the Gospels, Jesus is addressing the question of faith. Luke shows us the Apostle Peter in Luke 24. Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. We have the Apostle John. <clears throat> we, have the, <clears throat> we have the Apostle John. And it says, the other disciple, because John never refers to himself, who had reached the tomb first, went in and he saw and believed. We have Thomas at the end of John 20. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, lest I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. But then Jesus shows up. Then Jesus shows up and says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And we're told in Luke, and many of the apostles didn't believe. Luke 24. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. We have the disciples. We have Mary, Peter, John, Thomas, the other apostles, all struggling with faith. 
struggling to believe. They'd all seen Jesus die. They'd heard his teachings. They'd seen his miracles. And they weren't changed. They had to meet the risen Lord and then believe. And that's when they were changed. And the Bible says the same thing for all of us. It's not enough to believe in his teaching. It's not enough to believe in his miracles. You have to meet the risen Lord by faith. Or the power of God does not come into your life. If you say, well, I believe in his teaching, but you don't believe he was raised from the dead, you don't believe he's really Lord and God, physically raised at a historic moment in time. If you can't believe that, the Bible says you're not a Christian. Any more than these people were Christians until they met the risen Lord. There is no power, there's no real change until they actually meet him by faith. There's nothing unusual about their lives until they met him. It's one of the reasons why he meets them. He's saying you have to believe. This is not a hallucination. You have to believe I really am raised from the dead. Touch me. It's the reason why the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. No new birth, no living hope, no changed life without the resurrection and without you meeting the resurrected Lord by faith. Which is why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can't divorce these things. Faith has to connect with resurrection. And now every time Jesus meets someone, he helps them believe. If we look at the passage, if we look at how he helps Mary and Mary believe and how in the other Gospels he helps Peter and John and Thomas believe. And we have so much teaching here. It's amazing how much we have here just on what faith is. There's a sense in which this is a summary of everything we've been looking at so far in Matthew. And we've been in Matthew all year so far. We've got another year and a half to go. The point is, we have a summary of everything that Matthew's teaching about faith right here. And what's beautiful about this passage is it gives us this comprehensive understanding of faith. And without faith in the risen Christ, there's no power of God in your life. So it's important to see what that faith is. And the first thing we learn about faith here is that faith is impossible. Faith is impossible. Read carefully. This is the part that was surprising. This is the part that I noticed, verse 2. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. The question is, why did the angel move the stone? For whom did he roll away the rock? For Jesus? That's what I always thought. I just assumed the angel moved the stone so Jesus could come out. But think about it. Did the stone have to be removed for Jesus to exit? Did God have to have some help? 
Was the one victorious over death so weak he couldn't roll away the stone? I don't think so. The text gives the impression that Jesus is already out when the stone was moved. Nowhere do the Gospels say the angel moved the stone for Jesus. For whom then was the stone moved? Listen to what the angel says, verse 6. Come, see the place where he lay. The stone was moved not for Jesus, but for the women. Not so Jesus could come out, but so the women could see in. And we're taught that here. Mary and Mary and everybody had seen Jesus do miracles. They'd seen him raise people from the dead. They'd seen him walk on water and calm the storm. And he had often said that he would rise from the dead on the third day. He made that claim often, many times. Even his enemies had heard about it, and so they posted a guard. Therefore, on that Sunday morning, on the first day of the week, when the Marys come and they see the stone rolled away, considering everything they'd seen, all the incredible things they'd seen Jesus do, and how not one of his promises had ever failed, and the fact that he had promised again and again and again and again and again and again that he would rise from the dead on the third day, isn't the only rational response when you see the stone rolled away to be one of faith. Now, at the very least, I mean, shouldn't they have said, could, he, could it be that he's actually done it? That would be a rational response. If you've seen someone who has tremendous power, who's never failed in his promises, who's claimed to rise on the third day, why in the world didn't they immediately say, hey, he really did it? That's what we would expect. That's a rational response. The guards trembled and fell down as though dead. The women froze as though spoken to. The apostles disbelieved. Thomas doubted. You have to wonder, what's wrong with these people? And the answer is that faith is impossible. It's not something you're capable of. Faith in the risen Christ has to come from outside of you. You can't bring it up from the inside. And that's the first principle we learn. Jesus tells us earlier in John chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And the human heart's just that way. It will deny and resist even what it wants. If it discovers in order to get what it wants, it has to give control to someone else. We all have this sort of primordial urge to stay in charge. We want control. It's easy to see in children, and it's only humorous because they're so weak and so little. But Jesus says that's the way every human heart is. Therefore, faith is impossible, and Jesus himself is the only one who can give it to you. Let's look how he does it. I mean, Jesus is in the perfect position. I mean, isn't it his job to give us faith? A good doctor not only prescribes medicine for the disease, but for the patient. He has to check out what is my weight and what are my allergies and what's my condition. And the medicine has to fit the patient. Look at what Jesus does. Look how he gives faith to Peter. I mean, here are John and Peter, the thinkers, and they get actual evidence. And Thomas, the doubter, and he gets to touch. And here's Mary, who simply loves Jesus, and she gets called by name. Whatever we need in order to have faith, Jesus will give it to us. And the only way we can get faith is as a gift from him. By the way, just as a small tangent, small, 
It's really true that if it's really true that faith is impossible and therefore it's a gift and it has to come from outside and you're not capable of creating it on your own, then this means that if you want to believe, you first have to admit you can't. I mean, a person who has an eye problem has to admit that they have an eye problem if they're going to get help. A person who complains in the morning, like perhaps some of you did this morning, I can't wake up. I can't wake up is actually waking up. Or you wouldn't be complaining that you can't wake up. And a person who says, I can't believe, is at the very beginning of faith. Is at the very beginning of belief. When you come to Jesus and say, I don't even have faith. I can't even have faith unless you give it to me. That's the beginning of it. If you say, I don't have faith, that's the beginning of faith. And he'll recognize that and he'll honor that. If you know you can't believe, then you're at the very beginning of believing. I think that's the reason that Uh, the man comes to Jesus in the middle of the Gospel of Mark and he wants Jesus to heal his son. And so he comes to Jesus and he says in Mark 9, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus heals the son. Why? Because as soon as you say, I don't believe, you've begun to believe. Until you admit you can't believe, you actually haven't believed, as soon as you admit you don't have faith, you're starting to have faith. Faith is impossible. It has to be a gift. And it's given to the Marys here. I mean, Mary looks at Mary, and Mary's grinning the same grin she had when the bread and fish kept coming out of the basket. And that old passion flares, and suddenly it's all right to believe again. Verse 7, go quickly, tell his disciples he has risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. And Mary and Mary don't have to be told twice. They turn and start running towards Jerusalem. And the darkness is gone, and the sun is up, and the sun is out, but the sun's not finished. One surprise still awaits them. Look with me, starting at verse 9. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said, Do not be afraid, which is what the angel said. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The God of surprises strikes again. As if he said, I can't wait any longer. They came this far to see me. I think I'll just show up. And God does that for the faithful. Just when the failure is too great for grace, David is forgiven. And just when the road is too dark for Mary and Mary, the angel glows and the Savior shows and the two women will never be the same. And they have great faith because they've understood that faith is personal. Faith is personal. Here's what I mean. Faith is in a person. It's not in a principle. Christianity doesn't give you a general message of love and peace and justice and equality. Peter, John, Mary, Thomas, they'd had Jesus' teachings, but they didn't know him personally until after he was raised from the dead and their lives hadn't been changed. What changed their lives was meeting the resurrected Christ. And the reason I want to point this out is because there are 
dozens, hundreds, thousands of churches in this country that this morning will say, we don't really know if we can believe in this physical resurrection anymore. We don't know if those legends are true. We're modern people. It's difficult for us to believe, but we believe in the teaching of Christianity and the spirit of Christianity and love and equality and love your neighbor and the golden rule and justice for all. That's what we need. And that's what you're going to hear in a lot of places. We don't know if we can believe that Jesus was physically raised, but we have these wonderful Christian principles and they're important and we'll use them to change the world. Friends, Peter, John, Mary, Thomas had those principles. They knew them, they were taught them, and they were living in defeat because the Christian message is not a theory and it's not a bunch of principles. It's all about Jesus. It's about a person who's really God, who really came to earth, who really lived a life, who really died a death for us, and really was raised from the dead. And until you see that, your life won't be changed. Let me put it this way, if you can use your imagination for a minute. If you could personify the New Testament so they could talk to you, and you read it and you find the New Testament refuses to talk to you about how to live a successful life. It refuses to talk to you about what's good or bad or how to make the world a better place. What it says constantly, the main message, is I can't tell you anything until you believe in him. Nothing I tell you makes sense unless you believe in him. In a sense, the Bible refuses even to deal with you. It says, look, Christianity is not a philosophy. It's faith in a person. And unless he's in the center of things and he's the center of your thinking, nothing else makes sense. There is a sense in which the Bible refuses to talk to you about anything until you decide what it is that you believe about Jesus. And I think that's actually very logical. There are a lot of people who say, well, I don't know whether I can believe Jesus was raised from the dead. I can't believe in all that stuff. He was born of a virgin. You know, we're beyond that. This is the 21st century. We can't believe that, but I want the teaching. I want the teaching. I want to see how I should live. I want to see how I should live successfully and make the world a better place. The Bible says nonsense. The Bible says you've got to figure out, is there a God who's come to earth who you can know personally, who will someday judge all the earth and with whom you will rule and reign forever. Is there a God like that? Or is it that there's no God like that and when you die, you just rot? Do you think it's going to make a difference with how you live your life, whether you believe one or the other? It makes all the difference. How ridiculous it is to say that the important things are the principles, the values, the theories of the Bible, and not whether or not Jesus Christ really was God, really was born of a virgin, and really rose from the dead. The Bible says, I'm sorry. <clears throat> says the Christian faith is not a general message. The Christian faith is a person. It means if you want to believe, you can't analyze the Bible like a textbook. You have to read the Bible to get a sense of who Jesus is. You have to go to the Bible to see who Jesus is. You have to seek him out personally. Now, some of you might be confused this morning. You can't believe, you don't know what to believe, you don't know what to think about this religion. 
And some of you perhaps go around in circles arguing with yourself and thinking about Christianity in pieces. And what you need to do is go to the Gospels. Go to Matthew, go to Mark, go to Luke, go to John, and read it as a whole. Have you ever done that? Is there anybody here who has a lot of doubts about the Christian faith, but you've never sat down and read the four Gospels, say, in a week? Just rapid reading, not analyzing the pieces, but to stand back and get a picture of who Jesus is and his wisdom and his love and his goodness and his relentlessness. And if you've never done that, do it. Because you have to know that Jesus is not a principle. He's a person. And you have to find out who he is. You have to look at him and you have to talk to him. And if that's beneath you, then you're beneath God and you're lost. If you can't read the Bible and look at Jesus as a person and speak to him and actually pray and say, Lord, are you the one? If you can't do that, then you've never really considered Christianity. You've never come to it fairly because it's not a pile of principles. It's a person. There's a wonderful place in Matthew 11 where John the Baptist has some doubts about Jesus. And he's in prison. And what does he do? He can't go to himself. He sends a messenger. The guy says, I've come from John to ask you, are you the one or shall we look for another? Every mature person, every person who knows himself or herself knows that, you know, when you've dated or gotten a job or you've married or if you've been married or you're looking for somebody, somebody's going to satisfy you and you haven't found that person. Even those of you, especially those of you who are happily married, no, you still haven't found that person. Every mature person who understands his or her own heart realizes you're after somebody or something you haven't found. And you have to read the Bible and read the Gospels and you have to say personally, are you the one I'm looking for? And if you ask that, I tell you, he's going to come and he's going to reveal himself to you. And he's not going to reveal himself to you if you think of just a pile of principles you can pick apart. Unless you've approached him as a person, you cannot know him. You will not know him. You will never know him because faith is in a person. Mary and Mary and Peter and John and Thomas are grappling with the evidence. That's the way anybody starts with faith. What do you do? Faith always starts with a convinced mind. You talk to people, you see people who've had their lives changed, you study the evidence, you read the scriptures, you look at the historic evidence for the resurrection. It always starts with a convinced mind. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. In the New Testament, the word believe is pistuo, which is a word that's always used with the preposition ice, which means into. That means the word believe, it's used by Paul, is a word that always means to believe into something. All through here we're talking about belief that means believing into something. Which means you don't just have a convinced mind, you actually have to believe into it. You have to put a new foundation in your life and rest on that. My grandfather, who was a very unique character, passed away a long time ago, enlisted during World War I. He served in the Army and then in the Army Air Force and then the Air Force Reserve for 39 years and eight months. He went into World War II as a first lieutenant and came out as a lieutenant colonel. And he would tell me stories about both wars. 
He didn't fight in World War I, but he told me stories about it. World War I was a terrible war, as all wars are, but World War I brought us the machine gun, which forced an end to Napoleonic warfare, where everybody just sort of lined up and faced each other. And it led to the terrible creation of trench warfare, where everybody would get in a trench and they'd stand in this trench and you have to sort of stoop over. And for weeks and weeks and weeks, soldiers stayed in the trench. And you had to do everything stooped over because anybody who stood up, had their head above the top of the trench, is instantly shot at and killed. And for weeks, they'd go around stooped over. And then one day over the radio, from which they got all of their orders, it said, the war's over. There's a ceasefire. The enemy on the other side is already evacuating. The war is over. They'd never gotten a wrong message on that radio channel. There was no reason in the world not to believe it, and they were all convinced. But the real question was, who's going to be the first person to stand up? It's one thing to have a convinced mind. It's another thing to believe into that message. Real faith enables you to stand up. Real faith means trusting Jesus. It means believing into him. Real faith means building your life on him. It starts with a convinced mind, but it doesn't end there. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Is that a mere intellectual detachment? No, Paul's saying, I'm persuaded, I'm convinced, I'm committed. I have put myself into the bank of Jesus Christ. I have deposited myself. That's what it means to believe. Notice that Matthew doesn't tell us that the women just ran into Jesus. It says that Jesus met them. The women were weeping and afraid and astonished. And yet through their doubts and fears, through their unbelief and their preoccupation, the risen Lord made himself known to them. Jesus comes to Mary and Mary and they fall at his feet and they worship him. And God's reward to these faithful women who stuck by Jesus was to give them the privilege of being the first worshipers of the resurrected Lord. The women don't invite us to look at them. They invite us to look at the empty tomb and the collapsed grave clothes and the Lord whom they have seen. And we can see the change in them without even being asked to look. The end of the Gospel of John chapter 20 says, Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Faith is impossible. God has to give it to you. And faith is personal. It's in a real person named Jesus. And we believe he's the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. And he tells us, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. Thank you that he has risen from the dead. Thank you for your great mercy, which has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
And Lord, if there is anyone among us this day who comes here not trusting in Christ, we would ask that by your Spirit you would give them the faith they don't currently have. Give them the ability to believe and help them with their unbelief. And on whatever road they travel, may Jesus meet them there. And help us all to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.